If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, so we're back from Thailand. What an amazing trip. It was one of those bucket list kind of things. Um, I bought a fake Rolex and touched a monkey. That's really, yeah, that is the sum and substance of your trip. I can die a happy man now. I love that this trip really exemplified how different our spending habits are. How so? Well, I mean, you bought a fake Rolex, and I think the most money I spent was on cashews. (laughs) It's true. You got those fabled Thailand cashews. They were Tom Cop flavored cashews, and they were excellent. We're at this mall, and uh, Kat is looking at some of the uh, clothing options there. What were you looking for exactly? Like a wrap for the beach or something? Something like that. And she said to me, she looked at me and said, geez, I thought I was fat in the States. Yeah, it turns out not so much <laughs> as I am there. <laughs> yeah. They're tiny little people. <laughs> And charming. Yeah. Can I just say how unbelievably happy everybody is over there? So sweet and wonderful and helpful. Like that sales lady who came over when I was looking for pants. Mm -hmm. And she just kind of tapped me on the arm and pointed and went, jumbo pants over there. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, thank you. I do need the jumbo pants. (laughs) So jumbo pants was kind of like a a buzz phrase for us throughout the entire trip. (laughs) I think that's going to be my new. PC password. Don't tell people that. When we were in Thailand, did you hear about this? The annual monkey feast? No. Don't worry, they don't feast on monkeys. Okay. They have a tradition there of preparing huge banquets for the local monkeys. Is this in the the northern region of Thailand? Up in the Chiang Mai region. I thought maybe. This does sound familiar, yes. They bring bring out watermelon and other delicious treats for the monkeys, essentially setting a huge monkey buffet for the uh, primates to gorge themselves on. And that got me wondering about other strange festivals and competitions. You know I love this. I know you're into this sort of thing. One of the oddest ones I came across happens in Spain. Every year they conduct an annual 
baby jumping competition. Do you jump over babies? Yeah. Like you you might jump a bike over cars? It's very similar to that, in fact. <laughs> they lay babies out on the street, yeah. and then they have a person dressed like the devil jump over them. Dressed like the devil. Yeah, it's supposed to give them good luck, and it's, it's signifying, well, the devil is going to jump over them and move on to other people. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of is that experiment with baby Albert and the white fluffy things. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it is. Was it flowers for Algernon? No, different thing. Anyway, don't scare babies on purpose. Boot tossing. That's huge in Finland. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's rightly considered the oddest sport in Finland. And it's been practiced for generations. Tell me about it. They all line up, people, mostly guys, they line up and then they throw their boots. What kind of boots? Because in my head, automatically, they're the L.L. Bean duck boots. Well, that, that's a, a good assumption. But no, the, the photos I've seen, they look like old work boots. Oh, okay. If you live in Denmark and you're not married by the time you're 25, well, shame on you. And people will point out to you what a horrible thing that is by pelting you with cinnamon. <laughs> that sounds familiar. I think we talked about that at one point. It's just so weird and upsetting and god forbid you're still not married at the age of 30 then they pelt you with cinnamon and black pepper oh mm -hmm. well at yep. least it's variety this one's one of my favorites in switz <laughs> in switzerland on shrove tuesday at 3 15 p.m a crowd gathers in front of city hall the mayor then steps out in front of the crowd and in my mind i'm picturing like brian doyle murray Groundhog's Day kind yeah. of thing. So the mayor steps out in front of the crowd and asks, quote, Are all my guys here? <laughs> to which the children yell out, One, two, goat leg. And then the mayor throws sausages at them. This feels like a very everything, everywhere, all at once kind of scenario because nothing that you said was what I expected would be the next thing you said. Yeah, yeah. I, I truly, truly, with all of my heart, want to go to uh, Switzerland and be there for Shrove Tuesday at 3.15 p.m. What is Shrove Tuesday, though? I mean, is it just where they do this ceremony? It, it's a, it's it a Catholic something? holiday. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is it celebrated elsewhere in the world with sausages and top hats or? In Ireland, interestingly, they celebrated by, and I know this because my mom really was into Irish tradition. Mm -hmm. and, and weird stuff. And weird stuff. They cook up spinach mm -hmm. and they hide a ring in it. And whoever finds the ring gets good luck. Clearly a choking hazard. Yeah, it seems but dangerous. My mom put her class ring in a pot of spinach when I was a kid and served it to us. <laughs> I don't remember who choked on it, but uh, we all survived. Now, we have, have our own strange traditions here in the U.S. I mentioned Groundhog Day. The groundhog, we think, I guess, can predict the weather. Mm -hmm. That's very weird, and I'm sure it seems extremely strange to our friends overseas. And then there's this one. The Gloucester Cheese Rolling Competition. That's right. <laughs> Competitive cheese rolling. Oh, it's an exciting event. It's held annually on the Spring Bank Holiday at Cooper's Hill in Gloucester. The competition goes like this. Participants race down a 200-yard-long hill chasing after a round-double Gloucester cheese. It sounds dangerous. 
The Guardian calls it a world-famous event, and it does, in fact, have an international reach because winners have uh, come from as far away as Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Nepal. In fact, last year, a U.S. citizen from North Carolina won the event. Oh, wow. Do you get to keep the cheese at the end? Is that <laughs> yes, yes, you do. Nice. And what exactly is the Cooper's Hill Cheese Rolling Competition? How do you describe it to the layperson, those who aren't familiar with such violent dairy product competitions? Well, <laughs> according to a quote in the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper, it's summed up as, 20 young men chasing a cheese off a cliff and then tumbling 200 yards to the bottom where they're scraped up by paramedics and packed off to the hospital. Sounds like a good time had by all. (laughs) The competition truly is fraught with injuries, mostly because of the steepness of Cooper's Hill and its very uneven surface. First aid is on hand, a number of ambulances as well as Members of a local rugby club. Well, they're used to dealing with injuries. Exactly. They're there to offer their services by acting as cheese chaser catchers. That's not easy to say. No. The participants line up at the top of the hill, and then the seven to nine pound cheese is sent rolling down the hill. Mm -hmm. The competitors then, all at the same time, start racing down the hill after the cheese. The first person to cross the finish line at the bottom of the hill wins the cheese, which I'm sure is delicious after rolling through 200 yards of dirt and careening off spectators while being chased by 20 sweaty young men. I have to assume there's a wax coating. Or a thick rind. I don't know. Competitors who try to catch the cheese are not the only ones who sustain injuries. When it really gets going, the cheese can reach up to 70 miles per hour. It's been known to knock over and seriously injure spectators. In 2006, 25 people were injured during the competition. That year it had drawn a crowd of about 3,000 spectators. Several dozen people competing in chasing the rolling cheese slipped and fell, some somersaulted, and others just catapulted to the bottom of the of the ravine of the 25 people that were injured 12 were spectators one was hit by an eight pound dinner plate sized piece of cheese and two people were taken to the hospital the organizer of the uh, of the event told the press quote that's really not that bad normally we have 30 to 40 people who need medical treatment <laughs> i guess that's kind of like a perspective thing sure when you think of it A seven to nine pound wheel of cheese catapulting down a steep hill at 70 miles per hour. I imagine it would certainly do damage when coming into abrupt contact with one's soft dangly parts. Yeah, I mean, I dropped an eight ounce block of cream cheese on my foot the other day and man, did that smart. I would consider that training for the competition. You think so? Any sort of dairy related injury? Sure, Sure, sure. All right. Because of all these injuries in 2013, A foam replica cheese replaced the real cheese for safety reasons. The winners still get the real cheese, though. And this is not a new competition. The first written evidence of cheese rolling was found in an article in the Gloucester Town Crier in 1826. But the competition is believed to go back at least 600 years. Wow. It's considered to be the oldest custom to have survived in Britain. Some say the roots of cheese rolling date back to pre-Roman times. 
Many have called it Gloucester's most extreme sport. Now, is there any sort of idea how this might have started? Yeah, there are a couple of theories. One was that it may have evolved from a requirement for maintaining grazing rights on the common. So it was like a race to see who uh, could beat the cheese and uh, win the rights <laughs> so to creative. I love it. graze your livestock on the commons. Or it could have been, it could come from pagan origins. The Most custom, stuff does. Well, the custom of rolling objects down a hill is very pagan. <laughs> what a weird thing to say. <laughs> they actually roll bundles of burning wood down a hill to represent the birth of a new year, which, geez, you know, that's almost as bad as the choking hazard of putting a ring in somebody's spinach. Mm-hmm. Here are some specs and perhaps some lesser known cheese rolling related trivia for you. Cooper's Hill slopes at a, this is how dangerous it is. It is. Cooper's Hill slopes at a near 70 degree angle and then it shifts slightly to 50 degree, degrees before it plunges abruptly to the bottom. Wow. As I said, the wheels of cheese weigh eight to 10 pounds. They're about three inches thick and roughly nine inches in diameter. When a runner gets to the bottom of the hill and they're still on their feet, mm-hmm. they're tackled by the rugby players to keep them from crashing into the safety fence. Doesn't seem like any of these outcomes are very pleasant. I want to keep that fence safe. It is customary for participants to overcome their fear by consuming large quantities of alcohol. Not surprising. Uh-huh. I mean, you've got to be really loaded to follow rolling cheese off the edge of a cliff. Mm. Now, although there have been no documented cases of people being killed at the cheese rolling competition, there is a story from history about one runner, and this was centuries ago, who raced down the hill, crossed the finish line, and then dropped dead from a heart attack. Oh, The competition in 1982 was unusual in the sense that uh, a thunderstorm erupted and four adults and four children were struck by lightning. Oh, my goodness. They survived. They were taken to the hospital. But as soon as the ambulances left and the rain cleared up, the race resumed. Interesting side note. uh, One of the boys that was hit by lightning in 1982, he came back 10 years later in 1992 to compete. He uh, snapped his thigh bone in half. Oh, my God. His Just big, stop. His big takeaway from the race, thing. an 18-inch pin in his leg. In 1990, 22 casualties, including a 59-year-old grandmother who was knocked cold by flying cheese. Now, you said casualties. Injury-related, not mortal wounds. Okay, I think that's what the word casualties means, though. I could be wrong, but I I believe casualty can mean killed or injured. Well, look at me learning. One veteran who was a participant broke his right arm in two places, but that didn't deter him. He came back a few years later and broke his left arm, too. Oh, gosh. So if you're the kind of person that loves cheese and running down hills, this year's competition is coming up on May 29th, so get your tickets now. My, my source information, Board Panda, Wikipedia, CheeseRolling.com, and GloucesterCheeseRolling.co.uk. What a delight. Also the Sydney Morning Herald and The Guardian. Blessed are the cheesemakers. I couldn't help but uh, make like parody songs in my head while you were 
telling that story. Oh, so yeah, it was like, like fear of the shop, fear of the shop. <laughs> but it, I don't know if it was sharp cheddar. It could have been <laughs> any kind of cheese, I suppose. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. Nowadays, it seems like there's a conference or a seminar for just about any topic or subject you can think of. In London, they have an annual Boring Conference. At the Boring Conference, they discuss monotonous things like sneezing, toast, and font types. Also, the sounds that vending machines make. Reserve your spot before it's too late. Hey, before we read some emails, I wanted to share this. I uh, I was on the plane. We were coming back from, from Bangkok, and I came across, it might have been like a Reddit thread. Okay. And the question was, why didn't JFK just try to shoot Oswald? And, and somebody responded, at the time, no one knew exactly where Oswald was. And JFK's brain was launched from his skull to the lid of the trunk of his limo. And his wife had to scramble out to collect it. Oh, that might be why JFK never shot back. Death seems to stop all activity for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alrighty then. We got a message from Vipin on Instagram. Hello, Jethro and Kat. I recently came across this gem of a show. I am a part-time rideshare driver, so I started listening to podcasts while working. I heard about Box of Oddities through the Disturbed podcast. I'm at box number 113 at the moment, and I'm pretty sure I'll catch up with you guys in no time. I'm already feeling a little anxious. <laughs> <laughs> I've come across so many instances you have discussed on the show. Recently, I was watching the new News, and I saw that the government in Australia, where I live, was searching for a vial of radioactive material that they lost during transport. What? <laughs> oh, no. That sounds like a shallow end story. Indeed. Today, when I was scrolling through Instagram, I saw that a woman was buried alive. As soon as I saw that, I had to write this message. 
love you guys. You're the best. <laughs> I'm so glad that made you think of us. We always love hearing from you, curator at theboxofoddities.com. Hey, Matt, did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope, never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. And what you got for me? It's 2013, and there's a guy named Harrison O'Keene. He's 29 years old. He's a Nigerian cook, and he works on the Jascon 4 tugboat. It's a 12-man crew that was working on this tugboat to stabilize an oil tanker that was loaded with gasoline from a nearby Chevron oil platform in the Atlantic Ocean. The tanker was in the midst of massive ocean swells, um, incredible waves, and oh, a sorry. Bat- <laughs> I dropped my headphones. <laughs> Go ahead. Battering rainstorm that uh, was really rough. So this very powerful, very small Jazzcon Four had to be called in to fix a line on her and to keep her from capsizing. Now, this mission was not terribly unusual for the team and for Harrison. Their jobs were often dangerous. So it was early in the morning of May 26, and the team was about 32 kilometers off the Nigerian coast. Harrison was up early to start getting meals ready for the other 11 crew members aboard the tug when he popped into the little sailor's room. (laughs) While he's in there, there's a massive swell that hits the tugboat. It capsizes the boat immediately, cracks the piece of the hull, and sends the boat toward the bottom of the gulf. 
Sadly, a common practice on this ship was to keep the rooms of the boat locked. It was a security practice as pirates often robbed the boats in that region. So they locked the doors to keep the not just the contents, but the passengers safe. The crew were asleep in their chambers, except for Harrison O'Kean. Which is a great name, by the way. The force of the impact from the wave threw Harrison out of the john, and when the ship started to go down, three of Harrison's crewmates were able to get to the emergency hatch just as Harrison was approaching, and he saw them getting ready to seal off that part of the ship. So Harrison, was he like in the bathroom in the middle of taking care of business when the boat was swamped? Um, I don't know at exactly what point of his bathroom business he was at. Oh, I don't, I don't that think would that be horrible to be, you know, just at the, anyone, you know, you're getting to the paperwork and sometimes that doesn't go well. I don't think that was really the concern of this man or the people telling the story. Um, what part, like what the situation was with his butt crack. I mean, I just, I feel like maybe that wasn't really the first thought that well, maybe not for other people but for harrison it would well, obviously again a capsized boat and right crew members yeah. sealing off emergency hatches sure. so maybe not first well, top of mind kind of he would want to seal off his emergency hatch before no, that's just it, my thought no and i you know, I, I mean I'm we sure all have our own opinions absolutely you're you're allowed to yours thank you So just then, a wall of freezing water comes rushing in and slams into the three crew members, sends them out into the ocean. The ship is moving fast toward the floor of the sea, and the ship rolled. So water is flooding into the passageway. Harrison is pulling himself through another bulkhead into the ship's officer's cabins, but the water continued to rush in and it forced him back into a bathroom that adjoined the captain's room. He swam up toward the floor of the cabin, which is kind of the ceiling at this point, and found himself in the cold water, in only his underpants, in the pitch dark, in a four-foot bubble of breathable air. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds very uncomfortable that he was in his underpants. That's embarrassing. I thought about that when we were in Thailand, you know, because I, I packed some of my underwear quickly, and mm-hmm. one of my pairs of underwear has a like a picture of a hot dog on the front of it, mm-hmm. and uh, it got down strategically to strategically placed hot right. dog. I yeah. might add, and um, it got down to you know my last like pair of worst. clean. Uh, clean underwear and so i i put them on and then i'm thinking great i'm gonna get hit by a tuk-tuk in chiang mai they're gonna rush me to the hospital and i'm gonna be known as the american with the hot dog pants old sausage pants toth they'll call me all over southeast asia yeah well luckily that didn't happen yeah none of it did. no none of that happened uh the ship eventually settled 30 meters down on the seabed upside down everyone drowned except okeen Unfortunately, he was stuck. Now, meanwhile, on shore, Nigerian rescue crews had received the mayday from the JASCON 4, but with the storm raging and the speed at which the vessel plummeted to the sea bottom, there was really no chance of setting up a timely rescue. 
But eventually, a team of South African divers was put together. They would go down, inspect the vessel, and retrieve the bodies still on board. Even this had to be thoroughly planned, as they knew that the ship was upside down, and that combined with the depth of the ship made recovering the deceased very dangerous, which is all they assumed that they would be doing. I hate all of this. It's collecting bodies. Ugh. But that's not all that was down there. Harrison O'Keen was still down there. And as time went by, Harrison's situation became more and more dire. The water was rising in his little air pocket. The salt water was stripping his flesh off. No. And the air that he was breathing was becoming more and more concentrated with carbon dioxide. How long was he down there for? I'm not there yet. Oh, Okay, okay. You have to let me get to my, my da-da moment. Your big reveal. Stop. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Don't take it away from me. I, I didn't mean to. Harrison found that in a nearby room that he could swim to, there were some materials that he might be able to use to help his situation. Mm. So he'd leave his safe air pocket, swim to any kind of wooden objects that he could, and return with them until he had enough to kind of craft a platform of sorts to keep more of his body out. Out of the water and that's how he spent the next day and then the next Harrison had been underwater for almost 60 hours Ooh. when he heard a hammering on the deck it was the South African divers they'd already found most of the crew and they were sure they'd find another body but they were shocked when they heard a hammering sound in reply when Harrison heard this, this hammering sound, he dove down into the water, ripped the faucet from the sink that he had been kind of straddling, and used that faucet to hammer on the wall as hard as he can. His fear was that they just assumed that because they had found all these bodies so far, that that's all that they were going to find and that they would abandon their... Right. yeah. Yeah. So... He needed for them to hear him, and they did, but they were confused because there's no way, right? So as a diver approached with his flashlight, which I'm sure had to be a really good one, working at that oh, yeah, depth, and anyway, it's the first light that Harrison saw in days. He went into the water, reached out, and touched the diver, and this is what it sounded like. On the Ceiling, yeah? mm -hmm. yeah. What's that? All right, you found one, yeah? He's alive, he's alive. Okay, keep him there, keep him there. All right, just keep him there and keep him calm, okay? That's pretty dramatic. Holy it crap. It really is, because they're just using this footage as, like, recovery footage to, to show, the, like, the boat's owners, you know, what's left and what can possibly re be retrieved. Right. And instead, there's this hand that reaches out of the darkness. That would scare the crap out of me, especially if that hand was connected to a man wearing underpants. Harrison said that when he touched the diver, he felt the diver physically shiver because he was oh. so frightened that this hand is connected to a live man. Once Harrison had been located, there were worries that, one, he would 
panic during his rescue. Of course. And then also um, his body had absorbed a potentially fatal amount of nitrogen. And according to Christine Cridge, who was the medical director of the Plymouth-based Diving Disease Research Center, she advised the rescue team, uh, she said that his heart wouldn't have been able to pump back on land because it would have been so full of gas at that point. Oh, my God. So it was at 7.30 on May 28th, that's 62 hours after the boat flipped over, that they suited up Harrison O'Keene with a diving helmet and guided him to a diving bell, which is designed to maintain internal pressure. He did lose consciousness during the transfer, but managed to survive. And it wasn't until later that he learned that he was the sole survivor. Ooh. All of the bodies of his companions were recovered except for one who never was found. After the bell brought him safely to the surface, he had to spend two days in a decompression chamber. He suffered from extreme dehydration, peeling of the skin, insatiable hunger, and understandably, the trauma was one of the hardest parts. He said he suffered with terrible nightmares. He would wake up in the middle of the night feeling like his bed was sinking into the ocean. <laughs> and because of this, he swore he'd never go anywhere near the ocean again. Yeah, I'm with you, um, Harrison. Absolutely terrifying. But someone like Harrison O'Keene, who apparently can survive whatever, isn't going to be kept from doing what he loves. So... Harrison abandoned his fear and became a certified commercial diver in 2015. And get this, the rescue diver who discovered him, that we heard finding him Mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. the bottom of the sea, was the one that presented him with his diploma. Oh, that is, that's a feel good. Yeah, my whole body, goosebumps. I got my information from Indy88, Explorer's Web, BadassOfTheWeek.com, <laughs> and The Guardian. I love a story like that where, where it's you know a really difficult situation to go through, clearly, but he would not back down. And in fact, by getting his diving certification, he's giving the ocean one big middle finger. Oh, yeah. One of these. <laughs> Just like that. Are you a person who listens to podcasts? Well, if you are, (laughs) we'd like to ask your assistance, if you don't mind. Um, We are with uh, the Wondery Network, and they are conducting a survey just to kind of get to know the audience of the Box of Oddities a little bit better. Uh, and if you want to help us out, it doesn't cost you anything. Just go to wondery.com slash survey and uh, take the quick survey. It won't take you long. When they said they wanted to find out more about you people, I, I sent them a quick description. And they were like, yeah, that's not really what we were looking no, for. No, no. It's wondery, W-O-N-D-E-R-Y. Dot com slash survey. Of course, my email did just say, they cute with a winky face. Thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. 
theboxofoddities.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash boxofoddiespodcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities. And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.